So 10 years into your law career, you decide to go start your own law firm. Is that something you always knew you're going to do or how did that come about? You know, I probably, I wouldn't say always, there was a lean for sure. You know, in the right environment, I think I could have just stayed with a firm and just kind of grew within the firm. But my old boss, Art Glazer, who is a very well-known mediator at Henning, he left. He was going to be out of the practice. And so I just made partner a year and a half before that, and he was my mentor, but my mentor is gone. And then Bill's mentor was Ted Freeman. And Ted Freeman left to start Freeman Mathis. And Bill, I think, was the only person that didn't go with Ted. He should have, because he got stuck with me. That was a strategic mistake on his part. But so we were both left a little bit unanchored, which I'm not saying was determinative, but it certainly played into the decision of, well, there's, you know, our boss is no longer here. Welcome to the Founding Partner Podcast. Join your host, Jonathan Hawkins, as we explore the fascinating stories of successful law firm founders. We'll uncover their beginnings, triumph over challenges, and practice growth. Whether you aspire to launch your own firm, have an entrepreneurial spirit, or are just curious about the legal business, you're in the right place. Let's dive in. Welcome to Founding Partner Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hawkins, the host, and we're lucky today. We've got Rob Cruiser with us. He's the owner, co-owner of a pretty big firm. So Rob, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us what you do, what your firm does, and where you're located. I know you have more than one office, so. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Good to be with you. Appreciate it. My name is Rob Cruiser, and along with my co-founder, Bill Mitchell, we have the law firm of Cruiser and Mitchell. We are in nine states. Our mothership is Georgia, but we're in California, New York, New Jersey, Indiana, Florida, Washington, Pennsylvania, and some others. We're an insurance and defense-oriented firm. We represent insurance companies, insureds, companies, self-insureds. Our headcount is about 105 attorneys, and our total staff is a little under 200. Wow, that's a big firm. We're going to get into some of this. So I imagine when you started, you didn't start with nine offices, did you? No, it was. It's still humble, but it was real humble back then. It was four of us, and we opened on April's Fool's Day of 2000. We thought that was appropriate. And I sat in the front. That we, I had no office. I sat in the reception area with a desk. I signed for the FedExes. I signed for everything that came in. And it was Bill, two other people, two staff. So there were six of us on April the 1st of 2000. And it was a very humble, we were subleasing from another company, Compsys, who has since gone out of business. And we actually, they were so desperate to get rid of their equipment. They said, you can buy all the desks for $100. So I had my $100 desk up until about two years ago. So for the first 22 years of the firm, I had a a $100 desk and it was great. That's a great desk. The annual cost of that, what is that? It's hard to appreciate something <laughs> with no basis. That's right. So so your firm's been around for, what, 23 years or so. Before right. that, what were you doing? Were you at another we were, firm? Or? Yeah, we were both at Drew Eckle, good firm, another defense firm. We had started there together basically three days apart in 1990. Bill was ahead of me on the letterhead. He likes to remind me on that one. But I clerked there, so I said I had more seniority than him. But we were there 10 years, and then we left to start our own firm. Nice. So we're going to get into that, but I noticed that from your bio that I guess you are a CPA. Did you ever practice? Yeah. Well, I'm a former CPA, just to 
You don't want the licensure uh, people to come out. That's right. Got to be technical I, here. Exactly. I was a CPA. I was a. I worked for Ernst and Winnie, which back in 1988 was one of the big eight accounting firms. Now there's only the big four. But I was in the audit department. I was in Washington D.C. And it was a great experience, great time. And back then you had to practice for one year before you, they'd give you the license. So I practiced one, one year and one day. I got my CPA license and then I went on to law school and promptly did not renew the CPA. So it turned out to be good knowledge, but I didn't keep the license up. So did you know you wanted to go to law school when you became a CPA or is that something that working as a CPA, you said, All right, I'm getting out? Yeah, they were mutual reinforcing. I did know I wanted to go, but... My undergraduate program, once you were in accounting, it was so geared to taking the exam that you kind of felt bad if you didn't. So you take the exam, you help the statistics. And, uh, and I enjoyed my time at uh, Ernst & Winnie. It was a gr great experience. I, I did some really interesting audits. I did the circus, the Ringling Barnum Bailey Circus. And the, when a new elephant is born, is that an asset? Is that a liability? So we had some interesting stuff interesting. in that one year that I was there. But then quickly got over to Emory and finished out there in 1990. So 10 years into your law career, you decide to go start your own law firm. Is that something you always knew you're going to do or how did that come about? You know, I probably, I wouldn't say always, there was the lean for sure. You know, in the right environment, I think I could have just stayed with a firm and just kind of grew within the firm. But my old boss, Art Glazer, who is a very well-known mediator at Henning, he left. He was going to be out of the practice. And so... You know, I just made partner a year and a half before that, and he was my mentor, but my mentor is gone. And then Bill's mentor was Ted Freeman, and Ted Freeman left to start, you know, Freeman Mathis. And Bill, I think, was the only person that didn't go with Ted. He should have because he got stuck with me. That was a strategic mistake on his part. But so we were both left a little bit unanchored, which I'm not saying was determinative, but it certainly played into the decision of, well, there's, you know, our boss is no longer here. We're boss free, maybe we can be boss free on our own. So it didn't take, you know, we talked about it and of course we didn't have any money. So that was a complicating factor. So we had this idea that, well, what we'll do is we'll go talk to my dad and we'll pitch him the plan and he'll give us the money to get started. And so we did, we drove down to Savannah, we took our wives and I told my dad, look, we have a business situation. We'd like to talk to him. My dad's a kind of a grizzled, you know, cold war dad and business guy. And uh, we go down there and we present, I've got the, I got the kids and the wife and dad looks at the plan. He talks to Bill and I, he goes, well, fellas, I got to tell you, I don't, you guys don't bring a whole lot to the table here, but what am I going to do? I'll definitely back you. I got no choice. I mean, you're my son and you're my son's best friend. So, you know, I'll back you. And so he agreed to loan us some money. And then we told him we needed, I think $50,000. He goes, no, fellas, you're going to need more than that. So he said, go try to get it from a bank. But if you can't, come back to me. And so with that inauspicious start of him saying, I don't see you guys bringing much to the table. That's how we got financially set. And in fact, Bill always says the cruiser Mitchell is because of my dad, he was the cruiser, not me. That's why we got, I got first billing is because, you know, he agreed to finance it, but it turns out we didn't really need it. The bank helped out and it went pretty smoothly, frankly, but that was the initial mechanics of how it got going. So were you able to bring clients with you when you started? Yeah, we did. We had, I had basically one pretty sound client that I thought was going to work. Bill had a couple more than I did, but I mean, it was, it was not a ton of work. It was just enough for him and one associate and me and one associate, but it was enough. It was just enough. And in fact, there was a couple of clients. I remember one case very distinctly. 
we had a case and it was Georgia Power was involved. And I said to the client, I said, I can't handle this case. It's just too big for what I'm doing. And the client, it was a TPA and he was so appreciative. He goes, you know, I can just tell you, no one ever turns them back. Oh, they always say they can handle them and this, that, and the other. And that guy gave me work steadily for the next 20 years because he always said, well, I know if you couldn't handle it, you tell me because you, you turned one back when you were just starting your firm. So, so when you must have needed it then. So I know you won't take a case you can't handle. So I always tell that story of sometimes when you turn down a case, it's the best marketing you could do. That's a great story. Credibility is huge and it worked there. So that is a great story. Yeah, that was good. So I want to talk through, I mean, started with four attorneys, one office, you've got nine offices or at least nine states. I want to talk about the growth and, you know, you can take us through it how you think best, but, you know, how did you over the years, you know, when did you add your second office or when did you know it was time? Take us through that. Well, there was no grand plan. I could tell you that we wanted to show you how foolish we were at the beginning. We were just going to have a boutique firm. So didn't want to get it too big, too out of control, too tough to manage. And so we had a good client we developed in Atlanta. And we're doing a lot of volume for this. And we're like, I don't know, three, four years into it now. And the client comes and says, we want you guys to do our New York work. And I'm like, well, can't do it. We're not in New York. He goes, well, I want you to figure it out. I want you to go. And I'm like, just to get them off the phone. And this is a, kind of a, a client, but, you know, kind of a friend at this point too. And just to get them off the phone, I said, tell you what I'm going to do. If you promise me 40 cases and a half a million dollars and work up in New York, we'll be your New York attorney. And so he thinks for a minute and he says, done. I go, what do you mean done? He goes, you just said, if I did this and this other thing, you would do it. And I go, well, I did say that. He goes, all right, well, you got two weeks to get somebody up there. I said, I need a month. And so we didn't plan New York. A client broke through our stubbornness and our lack of foresight. And that was the aha moment of what these other offices can work. And that was actually a very big strategic and directional change because it opened up a lot of different things in the life of the firm. So that New York was the first one and that client was great. And you know now we have I don't know, 10, 12 attorneys in New York, entirely different client base. That client is gone, long gone. They got out of the business. And, but it just shows you there's strategic timing to it, some luck. And if you're good to people, they'll try to be good to you. If we could all have a client like that. Oh, it, well, it, it's, <laughs> it's a once in a career story. It's a once in a career, no, never happened before since. So that so New York was your first or your second office, I'll say your first uh, yeah. out of state office. And how no, long ago was that? It's gotta be 15, 18, almost 20 years. I mean, okay, it was so, probably about four or five years behind the Georgia opening. So it was pretty, pretty close. And that kind of opened our eyes to this new, you know, opportunity to, practice anywhere. New York, New Jersey came quickly after that. It was geographically easy. I mean, just across the river. And they've been with us probably 15 years, the same partner in his group. And that's about 10 attorneys also. And then Indiana came and then. So, so before we move on, so I want to go back to the New York office. I'm really fascinated by the firms that add offices in other states. You know, I think it sounds great, but then the practical day-to-day, the integration of the new office, the management of the new office, you know, how did you figure that out? 
Right. Well, I can tell you 18 years ago, it was a lot easier than it is now. Uh, having just brought Illinois and Miami on in the last six months compared to what we did in New York 15 years ago, I can tell you now we have an IT team that goes in, we have a banking team that goes in, we have a back office team that goes in, and we have a training team that goes in to the site, sets everything up, does the training, some trainings online, but some trainings in person. And it's just a much different, I mean, it's a, it's a very hands-on systematic checklist based approach. When we did New York back in the day, it was more, just more mom and pop, but I can tell you central to it all is having the right partner without the right partner. It's doomed. And we've had a few offices, not one office, not work out because we had the wrong partner. And he might say the same of us, but our New York partner, same Rondi Novitz, fantastic. She's, she started it. She's still with us. We're still going strong. Doug Sanchez, managing partner in New Jersey, same deal, been with us going strong. You know, he's just a few years behind Rondine. So just getting that key partner makes all that transition so much easier. And uh, Okay. So, so let's unpack that a little bit. So you have the client come to you. We'll give you 40 cases, go figure it out. How did you go about finding the right partner? Did you have well, kiss some had, frogs? How did you yeah. find the person? Well, the first one, Bill had a friend, Justin Lowenberger, and Justin, he developed that and just said, I've got this coworker named Rondine Novitz. And we said, okay, great. You two can do it together. Your friends, they were on the plaintiff's side at the time. And we said, well, it's, you know, it's just a reverse and we'll just do it that way. Well, it wasn't long before Justin didn't want to do defense work. So Rondine was quickly elevated. And then she, it just, when you have the right person, you have a mindset of, okay, we're going to overcome the obstacles, whatever it is. The trust account's not right. The IT is not right. Getting the right people is challenging. But when you have someone with that overcoming mindset, which Rondine has, and very hard to fluster her, uh, it just makes the process go easier because she accepts the potholes along the way. So it wasn't, it, it wasn't as, it was difficult and challenging, but manageable. You know, I think you're right. You know, finding the right partner, you and Bill, perfect example. You know, I, I do a lot of law firm partnerships and, you know, people ask, you know, what's the key? I'm not sure there's one key, but certainly there's got to be trust, respect, give and take, much like a marriage, you know. And so you found the right person in New York and New Jersey. What was what did you say was after those two offices? Uh, then we had Indiana that came along just actually through a friend of a friend, a trucking client had a firm they used and he wanted to break out and wanted to do something different. And they just introduced them to us. Sometimes we don't have this great, here's our 10 year plan. What we have is a very short term plan. And then we kind of open up, we're just open to opportunities. I, I don't know if you've ever read Truett Cathy, founder of Chick-fil-A, of course, his book, Eat More Chicken, Inspire More People. He goes on about, you know, there's nothing wrong with having these 10 year plans. He goes, we don't have, we never had a 10 year plan. We just had, a, you know, like these short little three year plans. And then we were open to what came our way. We weren't tied to the plan that we had concocted. We, you know, it's really hard to read the future. So we're not going to play that game. We'll do the three year and then we'll open ourselves to opportunities. And I always kind of agreed with that line of thinking. So that's what I'm a big believer in that too. So the opportunity, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, will present opportunities. You got to be, you know, you reach the fork in the road, you got to pick it up. And so it sounds like maybe all, tell me, are all the offices you added, were they sort of opportunistic or did you ever go out and say, hey, we want to go to this market or maybe client driven even like the first one? Yeah, the, we actually did headhunters on 
two of them. So those were, I would say, opportunistic. We always wanted California because we're marketing, you know, we're going to a client, we're saying the marketing, you know, just opens up so much when you have other offices. You go market a carrier or TPA and they say, oh, we don't have anything in Georgia. Okay, well, that's the end of the trip. I'll see you later. Well, now we can say, well, what about New York? Or what about New Jersey? Or what about Indiana? Oh, you got somebody in Indiana? Yeah, we don't, you know, we, we need someone in Indiana. And we kept getting inquiries like, do you have anything in California? No, we don't have anything in California. That was, that in Texas and Florida were always the ones that would say we, they have opportunities. So we had a HUD hunter get involved and found Mark for us, Mark Zimmett. And Mark's just been fantastic. He came on board in 2016 and grew that office from four or five attorneys to he's now got 21, 22 attorneys. And that's only since 2016. So that's when you have these, it's a virtuous marketing cycle, which is really strategic as these other offices, you can market for one another when you're marketing for yourself. And that has been a big catalyst to our growth. So you mentioned earlier the way you did it in the beginning, sort of mom and pop-ish versus now. It sounds pretty sophisticated now. Yeah. How did you figure that out? I mean, obviously, I think I'm sure you made some mistakes along the way. I'm always fascinated by these firms that have growth like yours. And I think you probably get better every time you off, open a new office. How did you figure that out? And, you know, do you have the right, did you have to go hire people internally, externally to help yeah. make the process work? We, you know, it's like anything you do it, you trial and error, you make a mistake, you figure out the trust account wasn't right in New Jersey. So we're not going to have that problem in Chicago. We're going to get ahead of it, which is a very true story. We now have the team, the same, the IT, we have a, we have a third party IT team that works in our space. There are third parties, but they're in our space. And, you know, it's kind of funny. Michael will come to me and he's come to me every, for the last 20 years. Now, are you guys going to grow at all? Like, no, we're not growing, Michael. We're not adding another office. Absolutely not. He goes, because it's important because we have to add the server and it has to have capacity. And so about 15 years ago, he stopped listening to me when I said, no, we're not going to grow. He goes, you're going to tell me you're not going to grow. And then you're going to come up with me and say, you're going to do Illinois and Miami in six months from now. And actually he turned out to be right. But he knows he's done every conversion, his team on the IT side. So that's kind of locked in. Our back office, Elizabeth, she's done the trust account and the banking on each of these. So she knows what has to happen, the business license, all that. So, you know, we do have a process. We have, a, like I said, it's checklist driven and it works when you have the right people. And right now, our we were able to transition to, like I mentioned, both Illinois and Miami in Q3, Q4 of 2023. Now we've never done that before. Bring on two within a small time frame. But, you know, the team is, is good. The other piece that I'm curious how long it takes, the other, you know, it sounds awesome to, to expand and add offices, but when you really think about it, it's not like you just add these people to the website and you're going. I mean, you've got files, you've got a transfer, you've got data dumps you have to move. Perhaps they're yep. moving from one system, you know, document management system or practice management system to yours. That takes time, and I'm sure there's all sorts of pitfalls along the way, it's, and it's not cheap either, I'm sure. That you know, it takes time and costs money. It's, it can't take too long because all the expenses are up front and the revenue trails, of course. And there are, that's why I don't think we would take a big, like, our sweet spot is that two to five firm 
If you told me, well, let's gobble up a 10-person law firm, I'd be really reluctant on that because I wouldn't want to sow the seeds of our own destruction. You've got to have, you know, I look at it as, you know, if you've got a quarterly billing client or maybe even a bi-monthly one. So we're out 60, 90 days before we can even bill. It's going to take another 60 days to collect. So we're five to six months of expenses for five attorneys and three staff with zero revenue coming in. I mean, that's going to absorb your line of credit. You know, you're going to, what are you going to put on that? A million, a million two? So we project it out very, there's no, there's no back of the envelope here. We have a very detailed spreadsheet saying this is the, all the projections for the new office. This is how long it'll take to break even. Because in my mind, a thriving culture has three things. It has, you know, employee engagement, customer satisfaction, and positive cash flow. And if that last piece isn't there, I'm not interested. It, we can't have negative cash flow for too long. It's got to even out, and it should after 10 months to two years, depending on the firm and the billing structure. So I, I absolutely have to keep eye on that. Absolutely has to be sooner rather than later because of the cash flow. So that's an interesting point. I imagine you have been presented with opportunities that you run through your metrics, whatever they are. You know, one of them, obviously, if it's a 10 person or bigger practice, you're probably going to say no. Pass. And so you probably, the good thing is you've got your metrics. You can run them through there before you go to the next stage. I'm sure that's happened a few times. I mean, yeah, I mean, we'll look at a, we'll look at a firm and either the, the practice is something so foreign that we don't do, you know, it's a bankruptcy or it's this, that, or that. well, we're not, I can't market bankruptcy. That doesn't fit within our platform of marketing. I can't get there. So that wouldn't work. And if the numbers, you know, the numbers have to be right. And we always are conservative and we think they're going to bring less revenue than they say. We think the expenses are, we, you know, we bump those up 10% because there'll be more expense than you think, but we get a pretty, pretty good estimate. You can tell if you want to do business with another entity, if they're willing to give you the data, then that's a very good indicator that it's, it could be a good partner. So in case anyone out there is listening that might be interested, you know, are you interested? Would you be open to more acquisitions or new offices? And if so, what's some of the, what are some of the things you're looking for? Texas. Where are you, Texas? We've been trying to get Texas for, oh my gosh, I don't know, 15 years. Houston or Dallas. We're not picky. We'd probably even go with San Antonio if you made us, but we've had so many close, it just didn't work. And it was fine. It didn't work because we really are not very happy, Jonathan, as you know, you just, sometimes you just, what you have is what you have and, and you're blessed to have it. But we have been trying to get DC, like I said, two decades. And so if you, if there's a Texas firm out there, that's five attorneys, that's looking to looking for opportunities, love to talk to you. All right. Yeah. All right. So, you know, you've grown this firm from four to over a hundred attorneys. What is your typical work week look like in terms of client work, firm management, marketing, business development, that sort of thing. You know, how do you divide up your time? And I'm in all of it, all of the above. I mean, we, as I'm still involved in litigation heavily, I have an active caseload still don't plan that to change. That's why I got into this originally. I can pick and choose my cases. And, you know, part of having a growth mentality is to, you know, keep growing and making opportunities available for others. But I like to have my caseload too. As far as management, very hands-on, my, my financial, my CPA background just has this, I get what we call the big four reports on every office every month. So I, there's no wondering where people stand, if, you know, who's up, who's down, are they in the red? Are they, in, we are, you know, some law firms, and I preach this all the time, you, you have to have, you have to design 
a thriving culture. And that takes two things. That is on the business side. You've got to have growth oriented, number one, and you can have the right incentives. And on the right incentive side, you don't know what you have unless you're tracking the numbers. And you've got to give your partners their numbers every month so that they know. And they can course correct if necessary. And so you don't get six months into something and you've got a big problem somewhere. It's just, how do I spend my time? So I've got the litigation piece. I've got the management oversight. You know, I'm in, I'm the, I'm in charge of the IT. I'm the chairman of the IT department because I think the computers go down when we're in trouble. I'm in charge of the, the banking committee. Bill handles the marketing and we jointly handle operations. In consultation, we have a, obviously we have a CFO and we have a, I guess we have a 10 person back office, but you know, we do that internally. All our accounting is internal. All our IT is external. We use a third party for that. So another question you've got, nine states you've covered, is it in-office, hybrid, virtual? How, how does that shake out? All right. Typically, we let the managing partner of the individual office, but say Rondine in New York, we try to let her run her shop. I mean, that's part of the what we say is our appeal is we're not going to, you know, micromanage you at all. So if she, if the market in New York requires to be remote then she can meet the market by doing it there's nothing ordained from atlanta and same with california and so we we do it on a office by office basis now in atlanta up until recently i was you know i still think people should come in especially if you're a young attorney this idea of remote as a young attorney i learned to be an attorney by by following art blazer around for five years i listened to how he handled phone calls i looked at his markups of my briefs. I don't understand why young attorneys want to work remote. I tell them, look, the market demands I let you do it and I will let you do it. But I just tell you, I think it's um, negating your professional development. And they poo poo me and say, I'm you know, old and archaic. And we just leave it at that. We agree to disagree. I'm-, I'm with you. I can see both sides of the argument, but I'm with you. And thinking back on the origin of your firm, if you and Bill did not work together in the office and you were both remote working in different places, probably this firm wouldn't be here, right? No doubt about it. I mean, so much of what happens is unscheduled, is unplanned. I mean, I got the job at Turekel because I was walking by the hall when Art Clares was leaning down to pick up a file at a filing cabinet and he needed some legal research done. And he said, who are you? I said, well, I'm an intern. He goes, come here into my office. That is how I met Art. And that's how I got my offer in 1988. If I didn't come around that corner, it never would have happened. If I hadn't been in the office, it doesn't happen. I mean, when you're in the office and there's some emergency, guess who you go to? The people in the office. And all of a sudden, you know who the people you can go to take care of emergencies. Well, guess what happens? You go to them again and again. And the people that aren't there, out of sight, out of mind. I don't think it's good for their professional development, but... Like, you know, I am not, if that's their thing, because we also say work-life balance. So I can't be a hypocrite. I got work-life balance. Okay. Actually, the market also demands a remote. So I'm, this is my little opinion, but I'll work with you. Yeah. I think probably a blend is the place to be. It reminds me, I hear a lot of these, you know, conferences and conventions. They say the magic is not in the room listening to a speaker. The magic is in the hallways when you're interacting with the other folks there, or maybe at dinner, coffee, whatever it is, that's where the magic is. I think that's the same thing in an office. 
it's headed to the kitchen, getting a soda or whatever. That's where the magic well, it's that true. It's a true Kathy thing. It's all of a sudden opportunities present themselves you didn't plan on, whether it be in the hallway, the kitchen, all those places you've just described. Everybody has a story of, you're not going to believe what happened to me. Everybody has that story if they're out and about. No one has that story in their kitchen, in their own house, in their bedroom, in front of their laptop, unless you're a good digital marketer, and you could be on LinkedIn, but those stories are few and far between. At the law firm GC, our team of experienced attorneys provides knowledgeable legal counsel for businesses of all sizes. Founded by Jonathan Hawkins, our firm specializes in corporate law, real estate, litigation, and more. To learn how we can become your trusted legal advisors, visit www.yourlawfirmgc.com and schedule a free consultation today. The Law Firm GC. Law done right. So a minute ago, you mentioned culture. How do you and your firm, how do you guys work on culture with the multi-offices, the multi-states, the different subcultures or the different decisions about in-office, out-of-office? How do you work to blend the firm culture firm-wide? Right. Well, I think I have you to thank for a little bit of it, Jonathan. Because when we were small and everybody was in Atlanta and coming to the office every day, I mean, the culture was expressed shoulder to shoulder, partner to associate, mentoring, the old classic style. They work hard, serve the client. It was very easy to see the culture. But when you grow, I don't see California. I don't see the other offices. And even if I was there, how do you instill culture experientially to someone who comes in two days a week? Or how to even, and let's say they come in three days a week now, but their boss isn't there. Their boss is now working remote. So between the two of them, there's no longer the shoulder to shoulder stuff. So we had a history of showing our culture through experience. That no longer is enough. So frankly, when I got your invitation, I said, we were working on it, but I said, we have to accelerate this. We gotta, we, we gotta do the manifesto. We gotta do the firm manifesto with what is our culture? What's our vision? What's our mission? What's our brand? So, you know, we've written all that up and we're about to kind of do a big rollout firm wide explaining this is the design. We got to have growth of mindset and the right incentives and then how we're going to build it. You know, we need our can do mindset. We need competence and we need compatibility. Those are the things we're going to strive as our structure. And if we can do those things, then we can deliver on the whole purpose of the thing, which is employee engagement, customer satisfaction, positive cash flow. So I think one lesson as we got bigger is we've ignored the culture too long. We're too busy to talk about culture. Our culture is we're busy. And we've taken a step back and we've, you know, we've realized that culture basically, as Jack Welch says, is everything. I'll be interested to hear how that goes over the next year or two. I've talked to others that have sort of gone through the process and it changes everything. Obviously once they're there, but even on the hiring side and the, you know, the yeah. onboarding, it, it really changes everything. So let's, well, you'll, let's see it you'll see it because you're in the introduction. So, so let's talk about, well, yeah, I do want to see that. <laughs> let's talk about hiring and training. How do you approach that? Again, you've got a hundred lawyers, you know, people don't stay at the same firm forever. So I'm sure you have people come and go like any firm. How do you manage that part of the, you know, 
firm. People come, go and come back. So we've had that dynamic at least three times that right off my head in Atlanta. I tell when we hire, especially on, I will tell you when you talk about people leave, I recently had someone come to me, a very good attorney at our firm. And she said, you know what? I got a better offer. I'm going to leave. And it was to a good firm. And I said, well, first of all, you should always come. You've come to me. Thank you. You should always come to me. If it's dollars, that's fine. But let me ask you this. Are you chasing dollars or opportunities? Because I always tell people, don't chase dollars, chase opportunities. For instance, this partner you're going to work for, what clients are you going to work for under him? Well, I'm not sure. All right. How many partners has that partner made? Has he made none over the last 10 years or has he made four? Because you want someone who makes partners because you want to be partner. And all that made sense to her. I said, well, go investigate it. And she did. She's upset. I found out he hasn't made anybody a partner and the money was, we could do something on the money. So I, that's kind of my, those are my mantras on hiring, chase opportunities, not money. And the work life, we work with people. We talk about the remote. That's a big factor, but it is the most challenging hiring environment I've been involved in, in 33 years. In fact, we're, hey, out there, we're looking for any three to five year associates, good work-life balance, plenty of opportunities. We are looking fiercely. In fact, we brought on a full-time hiring coordinator just to beat the bushes for us. So that's, we didn't have that a year ago. Well, I commend you on the way you handled that person saying they want to leave. I've heard stories, I guess, secondhand from folks that went to tell their superior that their, you know, their boss or whatever that they're leaving. And it was get the hell out of here, except it wasn't hell that they said, (laughs) and they were locked out. I have a friend of mine that, you know, basically get out, locked him out. He had court the next morning. He had to show up without a file and tell the judge, I don't have my files, but I'm here. So, so yeah. And the fact that folks have left and come back, I think that says a lot. So real quick on hiring. I know it's the most challenging. I hear that from a lot of people. Has it changed at all? Has it gotten better? Is it still as tough as it was, you know, three years ago? It's not as tough as it was three years ago, but it's not good. It's, there's been a, some improvement. We're getting more resumes, more people that are willing to venture out of the house, more people that are like, all right, well, COVID's over. It's really over. I've kind of, I don't want to say milked it for as long as it'll go, but I got to start my professional career. Let's get going. So we've actually had, I think, two or three hires since December. So it's better, but by no means it's, it's a, it's a, it's a candidate's market, not an employer's market for sure. At least on, on kind of defense firms. Well, I've heard that across the board, no matter what the type of firm. So in fact, I just saw, and I won't mention his name, a good plans attorney. And he set out, you may have seen it. It was on his LinkedIn. And he said, I will pay $5,000 to anyone who refers me an associate three to five years. And I emailed him back. I said, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So it, it does tell me it's on both sides. Wow. I had not seen that. I'll have to go look for that. Off, I'll tell you off air who did that. <laughs> so I want, I want to shift a little bit and talk about, I know you, you've authored at least one book, maybe more. So let's talk about the book. I think it's called Disrupt The Disruptive Lawyer. Tell me about that. Oh, I'm sorry, Jonathan. Do you mean this book? <laughs> oh, you got that one. Litigation management. You got more oh, than one or is it? Yeah. And then we've got, of course, our negotiation oh. book. Now, our Disruptive Lawyer one is the Litigation Management Book. That's that. 
I give Bill 100% of the credit on that. Without his leadership on that, it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been done. He did about 90, 80% of it, whatever it is. And then I came in and I did some organizational stuff. But he wanted, you know, he's passionate about litigation management and the right skills coupled with the right management litigation plan, litigation management plan to quickly and effectively move cases, which I think everybody believes that in a general sense, but he wanted it reduced to writing so that it would become the brand of the firm. And it would set not just a promise that we're making to our clients, that this is what we do, but also a standard for our own people. This is what we do. So whenever anyone says, what is different about or what's peculiar? Say we are disruptive lawyers, and it means this. That's what this book came from, and I'll tell you, it's been it's been a great north star for the for the particip- the members of the firm, all the way from partner to associate. But it's a brand. It doesn't talk about vision, mission, and culture. It's the brand. Now, all those are important. But we kind of went things backward. We had our brand set before we had our vision, mission, and culture. So now we're catching up on those elements of our firm life. So the content and the principles or whatever that are in the book, is that part of the training and the onboarding when you bring on a new office, bring on a new attorney? Every new attorney gets both books. And they're, they go, they're told to read them. And then their partner, if it's California, Mark, Rondine in New York, We'll sit down with them and go over firm culture, firm history, but also emphasize. I mean, it's hard to miss it. It's in the book, The Disruptive Lawyer. It's on the website, Disruptive Lawyer. That's our brand. So if someone says to you, tell me about Disruptive Lawyer and you don't know about it, well, then we have a training problem. So it sounds like you use it internally for your team and your attorneys. I imagine you also use it as a client development or business development tool. Yeah, absolutely. It's been... Bill does a lot of webinars on negotiation, the master negotiation uh, webinar. And that started with the litigation management book about the techniques and tools we use. And then that morphed into the negotiation book, which I also showed you. Um, So it's a big piece of our marketing development. It's digitally and of course, hard copies. And it's been very fruitful. We've gotten new leads and new clients as a result of both books, which I again give Bill 100% of the credit on. So where do you get the book? How would I go about ordering it? Yeah, just go on our website. You'll see an order form that you just fill out digitally. And and our marketing director will send you either one of the books, the litigation management or the master negotiator. I'll tell you, you know, they talk about leading with the book. I think it's great. You've got two. It is not easy to get a book together and publish. So. Well, it only took us 20 years. I said, what's How hard could it be? It just takes 20 know. years. Uh, but the next one took, first one took 20 years. The next one took 18 months. And actually, we're working on the culture book, partially as a result of the prompting of this podcast. And we should have that done in the, within the year. Um, oh, that's cool. And will that yeah. be an internal or external? We're not sure because externally, it would be kind of turning us into business consultants, which I'm not adverse to. But that's, you know, I'm a lawyer, not a business advisor. But we'll see. You never, you know. Drew Kathy, let's see what opportunities present. Well, you know, that's the second part of your career. I think a lot of people, this part of this, the reason for this podcast is, you know, selfishly, I want to learn, but I think others want to learn too, from four lawyers to over a hundred and nine states. That's, you've got a lot to, to tell people about. So don't say no. Exactly. Never know. So another thing, you know, I tell people starting a firm is 
easy nowadays, fairly easy. You need a law degree, internet, and maybe a trust account. And you can quote, turn on, you know, open up, you're there. But building a firm's not easy. You've talked about a few of the things, you know, hiring's tough right now, getting people on board, all these things. How do you manage it? What are some of your daily habits to help you manage the firm and manage all these offices? Right. Well, a couple of things is you partner up with, you pay up is what I, you know, there's some key positions that you just don't quibble about. I would say, you know, my executive assistant, don't quibble with that. I don't quibble with my back office financial people. I don't really quibble much with our IT. Our, you know, they present the contract and we don't fight them on it. So I would say pay up for talent and don't be miserly. Just get that done. I would say, you know, Bill, it's when you practice with someone who's, a, you know, if not the best friend, you know, a very good friend, that eliminates so many. You know, I call it the 60-40 principle is running a law firm is very difficult if you have people that are only willing to go 40% of the way. When you have people, I remember a quote, Barbara Bush, they asked her, what's the secret to your nearly 70-year marriage with President Bush? And she said, oh, it's easy. Well, what is it? What is it? Well, each of us was willing to go 75% of the way. And I'm not asking a partner to go 75% of the way, but, you know, if you have, if you want to go 60% of the way and you get these people, you know, you talked about trust in a partnership, trust is right, toughness is right, but a generous spirit. If I'm willing to go 60% with my partner and that partner's like-minded and they're going to willing to go 60%, guess what? You don't have many issues that are too far, you know, if you're both willing to do that. And we've just, you know, when you're generous, financially to your partners, you don't, I would say that is you only build a firm with the right incentives and the right incentives mean you've got to pay high performing partners with control and money. You got to, because you can't, high performing partners will not subsidize mediocrity for long. And they certainly won't be told what to do by mediocrity or a group of mediocre performing attorneys. So if you're a high performer, you're going to have control and you're going to have the money, it's all formulaic. Some firms is this black box concept, which they swear by, and that's fine. But I'm, I'm on the other side of that. I want everything transparent. Here's our, here's the formula. I, I go back to Truett Cathy. You want to be a franchisee? They get 15% off the top and 50% of the profit. That's the Truett Cathy. That's the model. That's a very simple incentive. And they have, what is it, 20,000 applicants for 75 spots every year. So is it generous enough? Absolutely. Wow. You got that wow. kind of demand, it's pretty generous. So, And they have a 5% attrition, right? Because people die. Their operators are dying here and there, or they're divorced or whatever happens. But that's how you know when many want to come and few want to leave, that's how you know you have the incentives right. I would say the same as building a partnership. You've got to have the incentive so that the high-performing ones want to stay and no one really wants to leave. And the mediocre ones are paid mediocre. I don't mind if you have mediocre performance. That's fine. You just get mediocre dollars and you get mediocre control. And that's the deal here. And it's not like, well, whatever Rob and Bill decide, not at all. Here's the formula. Whatever your number is, that's your number. Everybody knows exactly what they get paid. There's no ambiguity. So, and if the number is good enough, that eliminates a lot of problems. You give them enough control, that eliminates a lot of problems. And if they have a generous spirit, that eliminates all the problems. So you've talked a lot about, I think, what makes a good partnership work which I think is important. I get a lot of 
attorneys coming to me, starting asking about starting a new partnership. And one of the things I tell them is, you know, you got to trust each other, that sort of thing, but also vision. You need to be on the same page and that can change over time. And you guys have been going at it, you and Bill for, you know, over 20 years. How do you, how have you managed that part of it in terms of growing together as opposed to growing apart? Right. Well, you know, sometimes you just, you stay like-minded. I mean, I feel a little bit fortunate in that. Now, Bill's had a little bit more interest in the marketing side and less on the, on, I mean, he's got an active caseload too, don't get me wrong, but mine's a little bit heavier. And so I'm like, great, pursue that. I mean, if it weren't for him, we wouldn't have the books and the books have led to a lot of work, not just for him, but for other people within the system. So that worked out beautifully. I think you just have to, we're in a little bit different position because we started the firm, but if you let people say they want to do sideline this or sideline that, well, under our system, you can do, I want to work less because I want to take a sabbatical with my kid or whatever. That's fine. You know what you're getting paid. It's all formulaic. So we kind of have a built-in system where if people have a new interest, less of an interest to do the billable hour and more of an interest to do something else, you know, we can accommodate that. Now, at some point, it's not worth having them around. I mean, it's, you know, it's like you want to build 200 hours, it's, there's a lot of time and trouble to process someone who does 200 hours. But generally speaking, you know, we can accommodate it. And we also don't want people, hey, if you can't thrive doing what we do, because that's what we're, we want to create opportunities so people can grow and thrive. If you can't grow and thrive with us, no, no problem. Leave. In fact, we want you to leave. We don't want you to be somewhere you don't want to be. We don't want, because then you, you lose that can-do spirit. You lose that generous spirit. And it's just a negative. If you've got to want to come in, want to be with the people. Otherwise, it's, to me, it's neutral or negative. So your firm is 23, 24 years old now. You've learned a lot. You've been through a lot. If you could go back to yourself back in March or April of 20 or 2000 and give yourself any advice as you embark on starting this firm, is there anything you would tell yourself to do differently or not to do? Um, you know, I would say, you know, I would say this, I guess not just to myself, but a young person. It took a lot of... It, it's a tr- tough balance because people say they want to grow. And so it's just, I want to grow. Okay. I want you to grow. And here's, you know, here's some opportunities for you to grow. Why don't you just prepare a paper on this subject matter expertise and we'll get it out on a blast or on a LinkedIn. We'll get it to a thousand people and we'll see what happens. But they don't want to do the blog post. Now you're very active. I can guarantee you, you have to spend a lot of time juggling family work, and getting knocking out those LinkedIn. And I have this kind of saying, I said, what do you do during the midnight hours? I had a high school friend and he, we had a Spanish assignment. And, and Mike, the, the assignment was they paired us all up with someone, do a short story and present it to the class. So all of us did a little, most of us did this generic two characters. We say the, speak the words, three minutes, it's over. Well, Mike and his partner made a movie. Now in 1981, you couldn't make a movie, okay? You had a projector on your shoulder and there was no, so there was no sound, he dubbed it. And I'm like, Mike, how did you do that? You have school, you have sports after school and you have a job after after sports. He goes, oh, I stayed up till three in the morning, two nights. Well, when I was 16 and 17, I didn't know you were allowed to stay up till three in the morning. I thought he was cheating. I thought, Mike, I gonna have to turn you in. 
But Mike was different. He used those midnight hours. And so I just would tell people, if you're not willing to put in those midnight hours, then don't don't stress about your professional growth. You want a different trajectory. But if you want, you have to decide what trajectory you want and then align it to the work you're willing to do. Actually, the reverse. What work are you willing to do? And that's going to align your trajectory. So I would tell people, you can eliminate a lot of stress in your life by determining the angle of your trajectory. And then I would tell them, no one, you know, you worry about worst case on this and stress about this deadline. Stress, it all tends to work itself out. It all tends to work itself out. No one's died or gone to jail in the history of the firm. And yeah, you win some, you lose some, but you have to, you know, sometimes the patient dies. You have to be a little philosophical and tough. Like I said, my, you know, my partner, I want tough, trust, and a generous spirit and social skills. And sometimes you just got to be tough. But I would tell my younger self, it, generally it's going to work out. You know, try not to stress too much and determine what kind of work you want to have. You want to, I've been, you know, I'm sure I've gone the wrong way sometimes on too much work and not enough family balance. You know, with five kids, I'm sure. I mean, that's, of course, happened. But I would tell people, figure that out. I'm with you. I built my practice on the side or in addition to a full-time associate load that I had back in the day. No, no one at my firm did what I do now. No one really even knew or told me to do it. I just did it. And I remember I would buy, I bought my own treatises and read them cover to cover. I remember thinking I was going to write a book, you know, many years ago, I was sitting at the kitchen table as my kids were taking a nap or whatever, and I'm doing all this stuff. My wife thought I was crazy and maybe I was, and it was a lot of work and you know, no one saw it. I don't know why I did it. I'm glad I did. I don't even know why, but I did it. And, you know, people see success or whatever they think success is, and they don't see all the hard work and all the years and all that behind it. And, you know, there are different approaches, different ways to do it, but it's very rare that somebody just got completely lucky and stepped into it. Now, luck happens, but you got to be ready for it. I think that's huge. One of our elements of a thriving culture is competency. And your comment just made me think one part of the book is Bear Bryant had this famous saying is it's not the will to win. We all have the will to win. It's the will to prepare to win. It's the will to for you to go on your kitchen table and read through these corporate books and carve something out that no one expected you to do. It's what Truett Cathy calls the want to. His first element of success is the want to. I don't you had the want to. How do you measure the want to in people? It's very difficult, but that's what I would, you know, tell a young person on that is figure out your level of want to and your level of not want to. And I would also tell them, you know, if, you know, you got to learn to say no to stuff and the no may be to, to the business, the profession, the movie, I'm going to modulate my profession. But when you have, you try to start a firm or be a, have a, be a partner with four or five associates or a big practice and you want to have family, you got to say no to stuff. I would have loved to have done stuff with the state bar. I, hard no. I would have loved to have done other things. No, you got to start. Unless you want to be divorced, you got to say no to a lot of things, other things. And so I would tell my younger self to be better on no. And I tell anybody coming up, if you're young and you're married and have a young family, you got to say no to a lot of outside things or you'll be consumed. 
So that, that leads me to my next question. It, it may be a tough question, but I like to ask folks this. If you weren't practicing law, what would you be doing? Or as you start to look to the future and maybe you think about what your next stage is, you know, some folks say, I'm going to practice law forever until I die at my desk. And maybe that's you. But if you weren't practicing law, what do you think you'd be doing? I think it's an interesting thought exercise because I do like practicing law, so I don't have any regrets at all. I've enjoyed it. But I have also enjoyed the business side of it, you know, creating this business and seeing, you know, hiring people and seeing people flourish and working side by side. That's been really enjoyable. So I think if I didn't do this, I would do some, I'd be a small business person somewhere doing, whether it be professional services or, you know, I say to my son, you know, we got a lot of people, you know, a pool company. This, there's a lot of service companies that I just see these great little niches. I'd be doing something like that. I would still be working for myself, just not in the legal sense, doing some other professional services or even better, a good. So I wouldn't be tied to people in time. I could be more tied to goods and production. Yeah, there's so many opportunities out there. Well, well, I thank you, Rob, for joining me today. I encourage anyone that's interested to go to your website and get those books. But why don't you tell us what's the best way for folks to find you if they want to reach out to either join, if they're in Texas, to come join your firm, or maybe they're a three to five year associate. Exactly. Just Google Cruiser Mitchell, our website's going to come up, www.cmlawfirm.com. My number's on there, a direct dial. So 404-626-5367. That's my, that's the hotline. Call me. I'd love to talk to you. Anything you heard today that you disagree with, I'm welcome to that because humility, this business will humble you. And so if you've got some insights that contradict what I think, let me know. I'd love to hear. Great. Well, I appreciate it again, Rob. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Founding Partner Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on the latest episodes. You can also connect with Jonathan on LinkedIn and check out the show notes with links to resources mentioned throughout our discussion by visiting www.yourlawfirmgc.com. We'll see you next time for more origin stories and insights from successful law firm founders.